Welcome to the podcast of Finthropology, a company delivering insights into people's financial behaviour. In this series, we talk with professionals working to create a financial industry fit for a human world. joining us in our very first episode. I'm Erin Taylor, founder of Finthropology. Today we'd like to begin by talking about what it means to create a financial world fit for humans and how the industry can go about it. We will hone in on six key areas we feel make a difference. Inclusion, well-being, technology and choice, the financial ecosystem, sustainability and finance cultures. Joining me today are Dr. Alexia Maddox and Dr. Annette Brolos. Both Alexia and Annette are Associate Consultants at Finthropology. Alexia is a digital sociologist by training who specialises in peering onto the carpet of social practices and looking into the experimental spaces where people are tinkering with emerging technologies to develop social solutions for issues of inclusion and equality. Her interest in finance has grown through her research into the communities surrounding cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Annette is an economist by training and has a long background in finance and tech. Her interest in financial behaviour has grown over time, including through doing a PhD in collaborative innovation. Annette and Alexia, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me here. Yes, thank you, Erin. It's great to have you both here. I'd like to begin by talking about this idea of making a financial world fit for humans. We hear a lot these days about financial health, well-being, and inclusion. So the idea that finance should serve people better already exists. But what does it mean to create a financial world fit for humans? What sort of world would that be? This is a very big question. And the question is also whether you can achieve a world that's fit for humans just through financial services. But I definitely think that it's very useful to work with better financial services and creating a better market for financial services that meet people's needs. To me, that at least means services that help people feel in control of their finances and their spending. Great, Annette. And what about you, Alexia? I see it in in three different ways that are perhaps really reflective of my lens. And that's really about how you design for people and also how how people engage with what what their roles are with with the types of products and services that are available. And finally, how people use them and the logics that arise and the unintended consequences. So when you sort of look at it, it's design, use and logics that um, really help us to understand what makes a product uh, or a financial service or a financial world fit for humans. So for me, like in terms of the design aspect, we really need to think about people's experiences and desires in the ways that products are developed and delivered rather than thinking of them as this rational self-interested person. So just the black box um, of a person, there is much more that motivates a person rather than just uh, rational self-interest. So then secondly, it's to really understand about the financial data and technologies and how the the way that these these sorts of decision-making processes and systems work 
how they actually either lock a person in as as this sort of person who has to resolve all of the issues between one system and the next, or actually um, uh, creates a lack of agency for them and creates a form of emotional suffering where they get caught between different types of algorithmic recognition and those incompatibilities tend to like strangle the lifeblood out of them. So just thinking about how data and people actually intersect and how systems and people work together. So that's a really important area in my mind. And finally, just the types of social logics that come from the products and services. So how people use them and what it means symbolically for them to use those services. And often you can um, launch a service or a product that might then have these different types of unintended consequences and how people use them that really exacerbates forms of inequality rather than actually helps marginalised groups, for example. So just really thinking in those three dimensions. Wow, so there's really a lot involved in this question I can see. Um, I suppose what we could say is that it's not just about providing people with tools, but thinking about how those tools are offered, the regulations behind them, privacy issues. There's all kinds of issues that go beyond the question of, you know, merely having financial tools in order to make transactions. And I guess for me, um, I feel like this is why finance and anthropology go so well together, because anthropology does specialise in understanding people and their cultures and especially uncovering things which are hidden, things we don't normally see. Um, By observing people, we do learn so much about uh, how people are behaving, even in ways they don't understand themselves. And so having that rich uh, information about people's behaviour can very much help us to to make better decisions, to... to, um, to recognise when things might need to be changed that people may not even notice themselves. And especially for me, what I love about anthropology of finance is that focus on both the micro behaviour, like what the individuals are up to, but also that macro level um, kind of uh, behaviour or or the ways in which society is changing at that macro level, the ways in which culture is changing, the ways in which the market is changing. And I very much hope that in following podcasts, uh, we'll be exploring some of these issues more in depth with other experts in the region. So uh, for listeners out there, do watch this space. Now, it seems to me that this discussion would resonate with a lot of our audience members. I find it so interesting and heartening that there is a great deal of talk today about things like being client-centric, about inclusive finance, financial well-being, and so on. Many people are already walking along this path. And these aren't the only areas in which this kind of work to improve the financial sector is being done. A few weeks ago, the three of us, by which I mean myself, Alexia and Annette, came up with six areas that we feel will be key to creating a financial world fit for humans. As well as inclusion and well-being, we identified technology and choice, the financial ecosystem, sustainability and finance cultures. Alexia, would you like to explain how we came up with this formulation? Well, yes, it was a fascinating conversation which really began from both of you bringing in the types of of cases that you'd sort of seen that anthropology could respond to. And so you were looking at the the questions that business um, managers were bringing to you in terms of what they thought you could engage with them on. And as we spoke through those, you then started to talk about the different types of cases that you had seen in the sector and where the big problems or or traction issues were about 
for example, forms of change, types of technology and the human experience. So when we were talking around that, we started to realise that there were a range of themes that were coming forward that perhaps we thought might look towards being future trajectories and particularly areas of concern that we could really contribute to. So that's really how I saw <laughs> these six themes coming forward. Thanks a lot, Alexia. Why don't we dive a little deeper into some of these six areas? Uh, and let's go back to you first, Alexia. Which of these areas are you most passionate about? And could you tell us a little bit more about it? Definitely. So when I was looking through those areas, and, and obviously I was a part of the conversation where we developed them, and then I thought, well, what is it? Where is it that I can make the most contribution or where am I most passionate? And of course, I'm really most passionate uh, personally about sustainability. And uh, as I'm most qualified to talk about technology and choice, which is another area. And I'm very curious about finance cultures. So for me, these sort of merge or mush <laughs> into, into an area of, of um, interest. And so the first one with sustainability, it's always a question for me about what is our vision of the future? And what is our relationship to each other and the planet we live on? So those are really big questions. But, of course, money and finance does come into those questions because they really speak to how our vision translates into our daily practices about what we do choose to do and the kinds of products and services that people offer and what they think that's going to create for us now and what solution it's solving into the future. So that's really how I see sustainability being a part of these conversations in that we do project um, in our present, our future vision. And sometimes that future vision is really unspoken and it can, contains a lot of assumptions. But um, a lot of the time, it's really also about the types of technology choices we have. So that's a really practical and tangible question about what we see the future to be is what kinds of technologies do we have and which ones are emerging and what kinds of problems or, or social um, opportunities or financial opportunities they present for us. So that is a very practical and material version of our future visionary. And that's why for me, technology and choice is another area that's very related to the first question of sustainability. Um, because of course, when you're talking about the types of emerging technologies or existing technologies that are offered, you're always asking what people can do with them, how they can use them. And so a new a technology and uh, the types of choices are really about for whom and under what circumstances. So that's, you know, how I see the two very much relating. And then, of course, what goes on to that is the types of visions that finance cultures bring about how people use their, their services and opportunity and their products. So for me, the big loop comes back to that question of sustainability that travels through technology and choice and through the finance cultures. Great, yes. And um, it puts me in mind also of probably what is my uh, most interesting area out of these six, which is financial inclusion. You know, when you're coming back to issues of, of choice as well, uh, that's the issue there. Um, and the ways in which choice plays out in financial inclusion has changed a lot as well over the last few decades. Uh, in fact, a lot has changed in, over in financial inclusion. Uh, what I think is that over the past few decades, there's really been a shift in how financial inclusion is conceptualised and practised. So in the past, financial inclusion used to really be something that was done uh, primarily in low-income countries. 
with the goal of developing economies there and providing basic banking tools to people without access to formal banking. But these days, low-income people in these countries are increasingly using mainstream financial services, such as mobile money, for example. And these are services that everyone uses. Uh, they're not just developed for people who are low income, and that is a shift in itself. And interestingly, we have seen the opposite trend in high income countries. Until recently, most people living in high income countries depended heavily on banks and other large service providers. And these offered a fairly standard suite of services that everybody used. There was little interest in questions financial inclusion, uh, banks and other companies did not offer niche services. But today, uh, and largely thanks to the growth in fintech, we are seeing the development of many new different kinds of services that aim at financial inclusion for people who are marginalised or who have specific needs. So, for example, low-income people, women, youth, the elderly, refugees and so on. And that's quite a substantial shift. Uh, but in some ways you might say, actually, because uh, the lower and higher income countries have gone opposite directions, they're now kind of converging in a way. So inclusion has become embedded in uh, our ideas about financial services around the globe, uh, whatever, wherever you are. This is a pretty big change, and I think this is going to shape the industry for quite some time to come. Okay, so Annette, uh, up to you. Um, I think it's your turn to uh, choose an area and have a chat with us about it. Well, I think that uh, my focus will then be on money and emotions or what you might call social money. And this is where we'll probably see some overlap or some convergence between different areas that we have already been talking about. But let me start in a different place. Um, I think about 10 years ago, uh, we, in, in an organization where I worked, tried to call out to Horizon 2020, as it was called then, the research agenda of the EU, say to them, you need to understand financial, the workings of financial systems better, and you need definitely to understand financial behavior better. Because we keep talking about creating a competitive level playing field for financial organizations, yet we do not seem to consider the people actually making financial decisions. And, and I think that's possibly because coming from an economic world, we tend to think that uh, being an economic person is to be the rational man. You just need to consider everything coolly and quietly and make the right decision at the right time, and then everybody can move on in their world. But that's not how money works. Money is so very much social. Money and all the different kinds of financial services can help you exchange what you have today with what you need today or tomorrow. It can also help you distribute your wealth over a lifetime. So it's an integrated part of all the very big spending decisions that you make in your, your life choices, whether, to, whether it's a, getting a job, getting an education, setting up home, raising a child, starting a business, saving for retirement, or whether it's just your everyday spending. Should I have a coffee every day on my work to work or should I save up the money instead or for the future? So money is very much a part of your everyday decisions. And in that, in that way, I really don't think you can have a rational relationship with money and finance. It will be part of your emotions, a part of what you're frightened of every day, part of what you fear losing your job when, through the pandemic or you 
uh, fear being ill or losing a family member. So, so money is social. It is also social at the bigger level because it's part of the way that we organize society, part of the way that we organize companies. And in, and in that respect, money and finance is also cultural and the financial culture is important. And I think that when we try to build find better financial, financial markets that better suit human beings, we need to start looking at them from the people side rather than looking at them from the technical side, which has been very much uh, what happened in the industry. New technologies raise new possibilities. You just need to develop a product and serve it to the people and they'll love it. It's, you, you don't always, because sometimes it just doesn't meet their needs. So the financial culture is important as well. And I think that's, that's very, um, very much something to look at because there's a great hope that the upcoming fintech industry will be much better at meeting people's needs. But when we look at the products they create, they sort of have over time shifted their markets a little bit from actually serving people to trying to meet um, different existing financial companies as their partners to contact customers. So in that respect, if, if we don't create a cultural thinking in the financial services industry that actually suit people, we may not gain the results that we're looking for, although the intentions might be the right ones. So financial, financial solution, financial health, and uh, money and emotions, very important agendas. Thank you so much, Annette. That is such a rich answer. And I'd be very curious as to what our listeners think and whether they have similar experiences. So if you're listening and you have thoughts on this, Bill, please do feel free to reach out to us and, and comment. Now, I just have one final question, uh, Annette and Alexia, and that is, what advice would you give to financial service providers who want to adapt to these broad changes we see in the market and in, in human behaviour? So I might go first because I can't wait to hear Annette's answer. <laughs> I'm just going to get it over and done. Um, so the way that I feel is that uh, knowing your customer and understanding their experiences, challenges and what they want will do more for you than just relying on pulled insights from quantified behaviours. While abstract data like this and big data has its place, so too does the social insight and knowledge of lived experiences. I tend to completely agree with you, Alexia, because that is probably the best thing that financial services industries can do today, try to listen to their customers and understand the context that they are put in. Um, because in that way, they will get a completely more qualified uh, basis for decisions that come from the outside, from the customer side, rather than relying just on the patterns that uh, artificial intelligence can provide. And in that way, maybe they can make the two work together. Wonderful. Well, that's it from us for today. Annette, Alexia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fintopology podcast. To discover more episodes, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, RSS, or wherever else you get your podcast feeds. Links are in the show notes. You can also follow Fintropology on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
And if you have a comment or question or an idea for another episode, we invite you to get in touch via the contact form on the Fifth Apology website. Thank you.